think Tevez going to Juventus, what, what a coup that was for me. I mean, On a head-to-head -head battle, Atletico Madrid can do uh, more damage to Barcelona than the other way around. Either he's really blind or he's fixing the match. I, I can't see it any other way. I'm, I'm trying to get Sir Bob on my side here by saying City will win the Premier League. It, it is an upset. You would expect Man United to go and win there. Over a billion dollars was paid in transfer fees uh, between the clubs in, in Europe. It's football. It's damn football. Like Ferguson said, football. Bloody marvelous. Yeah, well, the celebration was, I can't believe I just scored against Mexico. Uh, at one point, Parma, I think it's only like 224 players under contract. Hey, they're going to throw me out of here, fellas. You're going to get me arrested on your show. If you're a serious talent, you're going back and you're playing for Santos. You, you know, you're going back to, to play for, like in Argentina, for River Plate or Boca Juniors. Or you're going to Europe. He looked like the Ryan Giggs of old. He was more creative than any player on the pitch. Um, he made Matt look stupid. He made Rooney look silly. Now, the Premier League is what the most exciting league out there. I think it's probably the best marketed league without a question. When you look at the draw for the, the Champions League, you kind of say, well, all the pieces kind of fell into place for everybody except City. I am your host, Joe Ucello. Sir Bob, Mike Orr. My co-host, Rob Rojas. My trusted co-host, Ben the Machine. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode 279 of Low Limit Football on this 27th of April, 2020. I'm your host, Joe Ucello, and tonight, as the world looks like it is on the opposite side of the curve with the coronavirus, leagues start to look into opening dates. Many leagues have announced leagues uh, dates where they might return. We're going to discuss those as well, but the first one that will come up will be the Bundesliga and we have a very special guest to discuss them. Mr. Manuel Veth from Transfer Market will be joining us in just a few minutes. Let me get my co-host in here, Mr. Roberto Rojas. How was your week, my man? Good. I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're doing all well as well, Joe. But uh, I have a more important question. Um, I was watching, and I, I hope you've been watching The Last Dance. And if you haven't, I totally understand if you've been busy. But I, have, I have you watched any of it yet? I have not. I haven't had a chance to watch any of it. And, uh, I, you know, reading Twitter and, and staying on top of world events through social media channels, I've, I've seen a lot of people react to last night's episodes. But um, And I know what it's about. I just... Uh, a lot of people are focused on Dennis Rodman. Is yeah, but that's my question. How okay. crazy was Dennis Rodman? Um, you know, he was he was crazy. Um, he, he always came out dressed differently. I mean, and and it carried over even to his his relationship these days with Kim Jong Un. It, it, it's just amazing, you know, that Rodman is that type of character and that type of persona. But he fit. He was the perfect foil for the the clean cut Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and and the hardworking. Chicago Bulls of the time and I'm going you know back on memory I, I've not seen the documentary at all so um, take what I have to say with a grain of salt but Rodman was always like the if you look at Jekyll and Hyde he was always Mr. Hyde you know what I mean he wasn't that clean cut guy he was something he was a different creature like an alien and he rebounded like it too Rob I mean that was that was his, his specialty that's that's what the man did he was 20 boards a night and he got <laughs> boards like people got points and um you know, and and he was the perfect fit for that team, and and obviously led to their dominance. It's funny you mentioned Kim Jong Un in such a, a a crazy time because we don't know where he's at right now, or, or if he's alive or not. Although, we don't know if he's alive. We don't know if he's dead. Yeah, we don't know. It's serious. like the um, 
but you know how stuff in North Korea gets uh, their information from. Yeah, well, that that information comes very slow and very garbled, and if you're lucky to get the truth, um, you're lucky to get the truth. So I'm con- I'm convinced maybe Dennis knows something. He might, he might, but he's not talking. Mm-hmm. I, you know, at least I don't think anyone's asked him. You know, have you called your buddy yet? I mean, <laughs> see how he's doing. I, I, who knows? So. Um, let's jump into it real quick before we get into, I guess what we'll call opening thoughts tonight. We'll try to get some semblance of normalcy. Um, I had hinted in the opening monologue that the leagues are starting to look at jumping back into play here. And we're going to go into the Bundesliga in depth with Manuel in just a little bit. So I'm going to leave that one out of my list, but Rob, one of the first leagues to look to return right now is one of the countries that was most hardest hit by this coronavirus. And that's the city. Ah, the city Ah has started to recall players. They're looking to start training June. I'm sorry, May 8th with a return to actual playing behind closed doors, of course, somewhere between May 27th and June 2nd. It's it's amazing how in about four weeks we've gone from, I mean, serious death and destruction in Italy when the world watching to the possibility of playing football in in really a month's time. Uh, so it would be interesting to see how they come back and how the players come back. And, and in opening thoughts, we're going to talk about some of the strategies there. The next league up, uh, although there is nothing official at the moment because of what's going on, is technically La Liga. Uh, the situation is very, very uncertain right now. Obviously, Spain probably one to two weeks um, behind Italy in the progression of this disease. They're looking at dates of either May 29th, June 7th, or June 28th. But right now, the the German, I'm sorry, not the German league, the Spanish league and the Spanish government is probably leaning towards a June 28th start or a not at all start. And there's issues with something like that as well. Uh, The next one up would be the premier league. Uh, The premier league wants the return to play uh, as soon as possible. And there is a meeting coming up this Friday to discuss a possible return on June 9th back into playing uh, Premier League matches as well. And the last one that looks like it has a very concrete date is Ligon. Ligon currently set to start back up on June 17th. Uh, The one that I've left out, MLS, there's absolutely no timetable right now for MLS to come back to playing uh, matches. But the league has stated that the lockout will continue through June 8th before they decide what they're going to do. Obviously, everyone being very, very cautious, players uh, being cautious, the, the the idea of ramping up testing, these are the things that are kind of on the table, how they come back safely for the players. Uh, obviously, not necessarily so much for the fans because fans will probably be locked out of this uh, this season. But uh, just returning for the players, the staffs, uh, referees, coaches, that sort of thing, I think is, is the main focus, Rob. Um, I, I just gave you the, the five dates just real quick off the top of your head. Anything that you think will not happen? Do you think maybe... La Liga will shut it down. Do you think they'll come back on the 29th? Do you think, um, you know, Italy will come back somewhere between the 27th and the 2nd? Well, I think with the easing of restrictions happening in Spain and even in Italy as well, I mean, you would think that they are able to slowly but surely just tread carefully mm. and, and be able to, to open everything up when it's needed. I think when it comes to sporting events, um, and we'll get to this as well with, um, with Manuel, I think it's just a case of how these clubs really need to to survive in this sense, you know. And and, and also, you know, I feel as if though it, it, it does provide that kind of entertainment when it was needed because, you know, it is a global sport and we all know that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of money running on this. So, you know, if, if they're willing to take, even if this is a risk, but uh, a risk worth taking, you know, playing games at closed stadiums and, and hopefully – do it very well 
with the extra uh, preparations needed, then I don't I don't see how we could fail in any sense. I mean, obviously we're seeing curbs flatten all around the world, uh, even here in the United States to some extent. Mm-hmm. But um, I think over there in Europe, you know, who obviously got hard hit way before us, you know, are, are starting to see that light come about, and and hopefully. That will mean the start of of the major leagues um, going back into action. Yeah, and, 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 you know, for lack of a better term, I know people are dying to see real football, live football on the pitch. Um, I I think, you know, it's something we got into with Manuel about um, the crowds and and the energy that you get from the crowds. I think at this point people would just want to watch. And, you know, I, I found myself this weekend watching a replay of the 2016 El Clasico. Yeah, uh, and it was just funny just to watch. I mean, Kaylor Navas in, in one goal, um, Claudio Bravo in the other goal. Neither of which are at their clubs anymore. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot, a lot of players that have might have moved on. Uh, you, you know, almost to the point where it almost seemed like the the match was not that recent. It, it seemed like players were were much further out. But you know, that's the kind of thing that we're we're doing right now is we're watching some of these old matches, which is kind of nice. You know, to to go back and revisit them. But there's something about live football that I think everybody is looking for and, and, and really, you know, craving at this moment. And, and the sooner they come back, obviously the better for the fan. But uh, doing it smartly and doing it safely is of the absolute utmost importance for the players involved, for the for the managers involved, for the referees involved, for the stadium staff that still have to work, even though there will be no crowds there. Uh, it, it has to be done smartly, intelligently um, and cautiously. Uh, to, to say the least. So hopefully the, the but soon, hopefully very, very soon. So let's, let's do opening thoughts. We haven't done opening thoughts, Rob. It feels like in a year. Um, and, and it kind of goes to the, the coronavirus and the preparations for the leagues to come back into play, whether we're talking champions league or, or Serie A or, or whatever. Um, and FIFA has proposed to allow teams to make five stu- substitutions per match. When football returns, they're looking to do this um, as a way to save wear and tear. These leagues are going to compress and condense the the leagues themselves so that they can get their competitions in one to meet, you know, television contracts to, you know, to, to get uh, the, the the sport or the, the purity or the sanctity of sport and competition uh, as well. Uh, you know, to have a balanced schedule. There's going to be a lot of reasons. So the, the proposal right now is that they allow only three slots for substitutions plus a halftime break during the match to allow five players to be substituted in total. It brings up some questions. Uh, it, 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 for me, I know one thing is that it allows the clubs that are deeper, um, and especially deeper on their benches, to be more competitive, right, to, to make more changes. It also allows clubs that have, I would say, above-average intelligent coaches to allow their changes to affect the game. We always talk about, we've talked about it with Max Allegri and some of these other ones where they're, they're strategists, right, Rob? And they, they, they think the game. And I know that, you know, to bring the Italian coaches in at Coverciano, they kind of teach this. How you coach a match in the 10th minute versus, versus the 60th minute is very, very different. And you have to act accordingly. So I think for me, it benefits, one, the deeper clubs, because if you have more options on your bench to affect a game, you can change the game how you want to. And two, subsequently, and in, in conjunction with that, it allows the managers, the, the above average intelligent managers to do this. Now, clubs that will be hurt by this, obviously, first and foremost, clubs that are not that deep, right? And, and I got to tell you, Rob, one club that I think of that is not that deep 
is Liverpool, um, which has a fantastic and incredible starting 11. And they might go two players deeper into that that are really, really above average. But I don't think Liverpool has the depth like a Man City has the depth. Now, granted, the EPL season has been long gone and, and over for a long time. But it could affect Liverpool, let's say, in, you know, just match to match to match. It's going to be interesting to see how an above average intelligent coach like Jurgen Klopp handles the subpar or the below average depth on his bench to affect a game. That's one team that comes to mind to me. I think Juve gets into a really, really great position on this one because Juve compared to Inter and Lazio, the way they the way they're matched up, Juve are a much, 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 much deeper squad. They're one of the deepest squads in in the world right now. And I think that that benefits them not only in the Champions League, but it also benefits them um, in the Serie A race, which it's a very, very tight race. So just a couple of the clubs that have come to mind for me, Rob, um, from your perspective, what were your thoughts on these on these rule changes? What are your or, or what are your thoughts on how it affects clubs and teams and, and, and sport of play? Well, it definitely has a benefit and also a, a kind of a um, a con for many of these teams. I mean, from what we're seeing, yes, you know, it is a huge benefit because, you know, the bigger clubs have the higher quality benches. So the likes of your Juventuses, you know, the likes of your, you know, Real Madrid or, you know, even the likes of, of any other teams, you're buying Munich, um, that kind of thing. But also, you know, these smaller teams need their starting 11 to remain fully fit more than the bigger clubs in order to compete. Right. So I think without these five substitutions, and you include more injuries, I think the smaller clubs get hurt more. Um, there is, of course, a, a difference when it comes to a team that is trying to battle for a, a title or a position in European spots or a team that's fighting for relegation, where, you know, you, you can have that luxury, Um and some teams don't. So I think when it comes to, to this as well, it's also just like being able to, to get back into the swing of things because maybe these players, obviously, they will get the training that is needed beforehand. A good, what, three weeks, I think I heard, yeah. before they can actually start to kick a ball on a, on a pitch, mm-hmm. or well, at least in a professional game. So it's all about that preparation. But I, I do agree. I think managers as well look to this. And you know, we've already seen some games where you're including four substitutions. I think we've seen that in, in some other games as well, where, um, where they're already including the, the extra stuff, in this case, the fourth sub. So a fifth sub might be interesting because it'll allow pe- teams to be much more, you know, cerebral, have these managers become more cerebral in the way that they're thinking uh, and how to approach a game. And being that where we're left off here in the season, you know, we're, we're into title deciders um, or, or into league, league deciders, Champions League, Europa League, that kind of thing. So it allows teams to be able to be more proactive and to really understand what they need to do in order to get that win and, and to obviously then win the entire tournament. And I think that's that's a big factor for, and it's probably going to favor the big teams as well because of what they have at their disposal, but also to realize that uh, you know they could use it whenever possible within the 90 minutes. Yep. And and I, I do see the, the benefits to the smaller clubs or clubs that are not as deep because, um, and let's go back to the Liverpool example. The argument could be made that Liverpool are, are, are let's say 13 players deep, right? At, at their, at their absolute uh, pinnacle of quality. Um, so what it does is uh, Liverpool runs out two nil, three nil against uh, a Bournemouth, right? Now you can take five players off the pitch, five players that you need to maintain their health. 
Um, so, so teams like that that might not be deep, it allows them to maintain the health and, and kind of fend off those potential injuries due to lack of playing on, on some players, maybe some of the older players. So, for example, uh, Juventus, I go back to them again, Cristiano Ronaldo, obviously getting up in age. I mean, certainly a physical specimen, but you don't want to put the mileage on him. So it allows Maurizio Sarri to maybe take him off, go to his deeper bench, and save him where we're going to cram in Copa Italia. We're going to cram in Serie A. We're going to cram in Champions League. And it allows Ronaldo to stay healthy so that he can compete on all those fronts and, and it, it benefits somebody like that as well. So it's going to be interesting to see how the managers take advantage of that situation to where that it allows them to to tinker with their team. And which managers, you know, c- coming out hindsight, Rob, maybe it's something we should revisit in August or September, once the leagues are done, you know, come back in hindsight and say, who did the best job of this? You know, where are the intelligent coaches? Because they're going to be the ones that that are best able to manage these these substitutions, whether it be to benefit their older stars that maybe need the rest and and decrease the risk of injury or their depth um, or their competitions. Does it allow them to to advance themselves? Does it allow them to stay out of relegation? Um, Does it allow them to win a title? Uh, these are going to be things going to be interesting to watch, let's say, in Germany, where there's a, a very tight race at the top with, with multiple teams. Italy going to be uh, interesting to watch. We're going to watch the relegation matches in, in England. We're going to watch the race for the title in La Liga as well and, and the relegation matches there as well. It allows uh, managers to really step up and, and see who is going to succeed with with the new uh, with the new rules if it does pass. So. We'll definitely bring that to you when that happens. Let's uh, let's go back in and let's explore a little deeper about coming into the the season and restarting the season. Because like we had said, the Bundesliga is, is set to start in literally a couple of weeks. And we were very, very fortunate to have Manuel Veth from Transfer Market join us to discuss the Bundesliga, the the, the not the rush, but the, the emerging uh, reality that we are going to get back to football, how it looks in the Bundesliga. Does the Bundesliga actually gain a, a foothold or a bigger foothold in, let's say, the United States, where they'll be the only live soccer being played on, on normal television here in, the, in this country? Does it allow an advancement of the league, of the team, as they get started before everybody else? So without further ado, the Manuel Veth interview. Joining us now on Low Limit Football from Transfer Market, Manuel Veth. Manuel, welcome back to the show. How are you today? Yeah, I'm doing all right. How about you guys? Good. We're uh, we're surviving, I would say, Rob and I, uh, with this uh, this incredible virus and the, the events of the world. And in fact, that's kind of what we want to talk about today. And we're glad that you were available to talk with us. Uh, the German Bundesliga is really the first league to announce that they will be returning. They've actually set a date of May 9th to come back. Now, this is all contingent on the German government who have a meeting currently scheduled for April 30th to decide whether it will be safe for these players to return to the pitch, these uh, coaches, referees, and, and everyone that it takes to run an actual football match in the Bundesliga. What are your, what's your sense of this actually going through, especially given the fact that the Eredivisie and the Jupiler League in Belgium have both canceled their seasons within the past few days? Germany's still on course to open, um, and really right behind them, which is incredible enough, is Italy uh, and the Serie A looking to open sometime soon as well. What are your thoughts on Germany being able to open, and will it pass the German government? Well, I, first of all, you know, as you said rightly, so it's it's up to the German government and it's up to that, you know, the decision is going to be made on April 30th, um, which is the key date. Um, what you have to add to that, too, is that um, Söder, the prime minister of Bavaria, Laschet, the prime minister of North Rhine-Westphalia, 
Um, and some other ministers, um, including the minister of Saxony, have spoken out and said, yeah, we should probably get the league back going and they would be supportive of it. They have seen the the um, master plan that the DFL, the Deutsche Fußballliga, the governing body of the Bundesliga has laid out and they said it's it's quite a convincing plan um, to bring football back. So, you know, the, the, op- the, the Bundesliga has been sort of saying, okay, we can bring back, this is our master plan and um, it seems like there is quite a lot of support um, from politicians to do bring it back. Now, the May 9th date, um, that is the day earliest date that we're going to see football. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they say, okay, well, on April 30th, the government will say, yeah, you can play. But the Bundesliga will actually say, look, May 9th is a little ambitious um, because, you know, players are currently training. I think Bayern are currently training in groups of seven, Right. That's the biggest groups that you see in all the, in, in all of the clubs. Um, I spoke to Tyler Adams um, just a few days ago, and he said, "Like, look, we're training, but a lot of his passing, etc. So they maybe the clay players want to have a little bit more time to actually, you know, get this this thing going, and uh, they might need some time also in terms of just organizing the games and how they're going to lay out the schedule, etc. So I think May 9th is the earliest date. Um, are we going to see football in May? I'm I'm pretty pretty um, optimistic that we will because you know Germany has a very good handle on this virus um, they have a lot of confirmed cases there's 155,000 confirmed cases in Germany but the amount of people that have died is 5,800 um, I know people who work in the industry in the health industry over in Germany is 13,000 empty beds at the moment so they have really have a good handle on on the situation and I think we can be quite optimistic about seeing the game come back um, as in conjunction with what's going on in the Netherlands and Belgium, you know, in Belgium, the regular season was pretty much finished, right? Um, they would have gone into their playoff system now. So for them, it was kind of easier to finish off. The Netherlands, um, this is maybe surprising to a lot of people. They had a very relaxed approach towards this, this virus, similar to what you see in Sweden. And they're kind of paying the price for that a little bit right now. And I think that is why the government is basically bringing in harsh measures way later than anyone else has, right? So they're a little bit behind the ball, uh, behind behind everyone else in Europe in that regard. And I think when you see um, sort of the comments that have come out of the Eredivisie from various um, clubs, uh, the, the head coach of Cambuur, for example, called, this, called the cancellation the biggest disgrace, disgrace in Dutch sport. I think the final word on the cancellation of the Eredivisie isn't quite spoken yet. Now, Manuel, I mean, looking into this entire uh, return for the Bundesliga, you know, there was a leaked document that was made a couple of days ago when, you know, this kind of uh, word came out. Um, and looking at it real quick, we're seeing some of the stuff that is going to happen. We see the maximum of 322 people, which would include players, staff, media, medical, and et cetera, at any game. You know, there'd be temperature checks at the entrance, uh, no shaking hands or team photos, no mixed zone light press conferences. But the real interesting part uh, from the the main documents we're, we're saying that there was no requirement for a group quarantine if there is a positive test in one of the players I mean that is very interesting to say uh, for anything I mean you know there's been that there's obviously these players are going to be tested and whatnot but um, you know do you feel that you know the decision that the Bundesliga have been making uh, are the right ones you mean is there some that perhaps are being missed out I mean what, what are your thoughts on all of this uh, real quick 
Well, first of all, it's only 213 people inside the stadium, right? Um, the mm-hmm. 300 we get with the 100 people that will be around the stadium and they will actually not be in contact. I think there's been some numbers floating around that have kind of misrepresented that. But yeah, the group contact. Um, look, I think when we the, the original case that shut the sport down around the world was the Utah chess player, um, the basketball player. I forgot his name. Goliath, I think his name is. Um and he, they, they did some, you know, I think three players, three of his colleagues, teammates were, were infected after, after he tested positive and he, they played the Toronto Raptors and not a single one of their players tested positive and they went into quarantine. So we don't know how, you know, infection rate we talk and how uh, widely it spreads. Um, you know, I'm not a medical expert, but it, it doesn't seem like in athletes, even if they're in close contact, the, the spread is quite so high. And you have to also remember that they, Bundesliga, work very closely with the Robert Koch Institute on this and various other institutes and laboratories and they have team doctors um, that that are giving the okay on this. And I think in the end of the day, the documents that are presented by the DFL to government officials they're always going to be up to debate. And I think there's always going to be, um, as they're going along with this, there's always going to be checks and balances. So if they find that certain mechanisms are not working, they're going to have to change this. If they find that, you know, they're starting to play and all of a sudden there's an outbreak, we might have to shut the entire thing down again. So I think everything that you're seeing right now is touch and go. And is about trying to get these games going again and trying to understand how we can actually continue the business of football because it is a business. It's a money-making business, right? In an environment that includes COVID-19. And I think um, any measures that you see right now and any master plan that you see right now by the DFL is really up to debate and is really up, is like, is that's the status now. But as we go along, you know, there will probably be changes made to um, adapt to the reality on the ground. And, it, and Joe, I mean, I'll, I'll jump on to you real quick. I mean, you know, this is something that I think for all the other leagues as well, you know, they're keeping a close eye. And and it's interesting because you know of how effective that Germany has become during this whole um, crisis. I mean, you know, there are other countries that could follow this kind of route. But at the same time, you know, it only takes for one you know case and, and an outbreak to just shut everything down. Sure. You know, and, and I think that's going to be the litmus test of, of when this returns is, Do we have players that are uh, positive? And like Manuel said, do you find that these players have transferred to other players when, you know, during play? I I think that will be a huge concern if we if we find that a case has moved from player to player after a match, because I would imagine most, if not all of these players are going to be tested prior to uh, any particular match or prior to the, the league being opened again. So if we turn around all of a sudden and we find player X on one team transfers the the uh, the disease to play or why on another team i'm wondering if you're going to see this all get shut back down very very quickly i think germany is the case test and i think it's a great spot to have the case test because they've done so well with the virus comparatively to some of the other countries like italy and like spain um and even france for an example that have have had a much much tougher time dealing with the disease that i think uh it's a good spot to have that litmus test for not only for football but for all sport around the world whether we're talking basketball or hockey or baseball here in this country you know to see how the german league handles it what steps they take and then those other leagues to mirror those steps and and move forward rob 
Now, going into what this means for the fans, because, you know, we see here that the um, the large event with crowds, I think, were banned until at least October. And, you know, obviously, if we do see cases lower, you know, the curve being more flattened in um, in Germany, I mean, Manu, I mean, this, this could be a case where we could see some certain fans go to the stadium, don't you think? Or do we still feel that in practice, and we obviously have to wait for that, um, that it will be continue to be behind closed doors until we get some sort of approval from the German government. I, I don't think we're going to see fans in attendance this year. <laughs> yeah, you know, this, this is, uh, I think, anyone thinking that we're going to see attendance at stadiums, um, I think that's a pipe dream. Um, you know, when you, when you look at the spread of the virus and the, the, how quickly it can transfer in, in close grounds. Um, no, I, I think fans is off the table. Um, say goodbye to fan events in 2020. I, I'm and I'm usually very optimistic with this kind of stuff. You know, even if they find a vaccine, it it will take months to distribute it around everyone. So, say I think you know, realistically speaking, we will have games behind closed doors, and the leagues that have big television contracts are going to come out and play and um, try to play because, you know, they, they need to make some kind of money. And I think a lot of people will actually welcome um, watching the games on TV. And maybe to add to what you guys just said, there is some leaks that are also coming back. I mean, in South Korea, they're bringing the football back. Uh, in Taiwan, they never really stopped. They played behind closed doors. They're playing baseball and soccer. And so, and quite, you know, without any, without any problems. Um, Taiwan is another country that has handled this virus very well. Korea is another one, right? Um, and they have, they bring, Korea is bringing back the football and Taiwan never really stopped. So there is other examples. Um, there's also bad examples like Belarus where the virus is, um, you know, going through the population and they're still playing soccer and they probably shouldn't. Mm -hmm. But I, I think um, when you look, when you look at the German example, um, when it comes to crowds, no, I think, you know, that's going to be very hard to manage. And I think even when crowds come back, um, I think it's going to be a very slow process of opening up the stadiums. We will not see a sold-out sold uh, Signal Iduna Park in Dortmund or sold-out Allianz Arena in in Munich, uh, uh, you know, until we have herd immunity or or any kind of treatment. Um, at most, I think they will probably allow um, certain sections of the stands to slowly be opened. But you know, that again, I'm speculating. I I don't actually know. I don't think anyone has a plan for that at, in place at the moment. You know, I, Emmanuel, I want to jump in because I, I want to actually piggyback on that. For me personally. I think that you don't see full stadiums like we saw prior to um, prior to the, the the development of this virus. I don't think we see a full stadium in its truest sense until after a vaccine. And I'll be honest with you, I yeah. could very well see the twenty twenty slash twenty twenty one Euros being played behind closed doors. I can really see that happening because I don't know that a vaccine will de be developed in time for that. I think at best. It would either be either closed doors or very, very limited, um, you know, selling of seats, maybe three seats apart from each other, that kind of thing yeah. to keep some type of social distance. But I don't think we will ever see, not ever, but I don't think we will see the return of full 80,000 fans at a stadium with all the pomp and circumstance that comes with that until the 21-22 season, possibly for the 22 World Cup. But mm. I, 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 don't, I don't think we will have that type of coverage or that type of immunity or that type of vaccine 
until that event hits. And I, and I don't know that the vaccine will be here in time for the for the euros or for the Copa America. Yeah, I don't want to be a party pooper, but I actually read up on this. And um, the, the fastest we've ever developed um, vaccine was for mums. Mm-hmm. And it took four years. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I, and yes, the efforts with this are much bigger. And yes, the entire planet is working on this. And, you know, yeah, we are in human trials, etc. But uh, we have to be realistic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's um, we can't give humans hope, false hope like some politicians are doing. Uh, you know, I like what um, what our local local politicians here in British Columbia are doing where I'm stuck while, the, while this virus is ravaging the world. And uh, I like what Angela Merkel is doing. And it's very realistic. You know, um, we can't give people false hope. There's not going to be some miracle cure, um, you know, like it has been trumpeted a lot by the White House. That's not going to happen. It's not a TV show. Yeah. Uh, this is real life. And um, the reality of things is that even if you develop a vaccine, you have to test it. Testing phases take a long time. And then you have to develop and you have to roll it out. And, uh, it, and that takes time too. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm with you. I think um, we're, we are going to see attendance in games again. We're going to see people cheering their clubs, etc. But it's going to take time. Uh, and I think that is that is the reality of things. And I think this is also why why we have to look into bringing the games back and, you know, live with the reality that we're in. Because... Let's say we wait until that happens. Um, in four years' time, if we wait for four years and don't play and don't run start businesses again in dealing with the reality that we're in right now, we will have nothing to go back to. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I think people have to remember. Like, There's going to be a lot of complaints about state games being behind, played behind closed doors. Fan organizations are going to complain. There's going to be people complaining about players getting... Um, extra treatment, treatment because, like you know, in Germany they're using twenty thousand tests for the players until the end of the season, which, by the way, only makes up about zero point four percent of the testing capacity of the country. Wow. So there's going to be a lot of complaining about that. But football is not going to be the only industry trying to come back in this own in this new reality. We will have to roll out our industries back too. And uh, the reality is, it's going to take some time until we're going to find something to to cure this thing, mm-hmm. or you know, make us immune, or until we reach herd immunity. And uh, we can't wait four years and not live our lives. No, that's true. <laughs> that's just that you know, yeah, we you know, our life is not going to be the same as it was before the virus, or on how it is going to be after we have a vaccination. But we cannot not live our lives either, and that's that is, I think, something that people wrap the heads around because i'm otherwise we're not going to have a life to go back to i could i couldn't agree with you more um let's let's look forward then because obviously we've said that the german bundesliga is going to be possibly the first uh of the mainstream leagues to come back i want to actually start by something you had said uh earlier in the interview where the the dutch decision is not set in stone yet can you expand more on that because i i was under the impression it was but if it's not i'd love to hear more well, Utrecht, Utrecht have said they're going to sue. Um, ah, okay. You know, the fact that there's no promotion and relegation, the fact that UEFA has told leagues to finish the season, mm-hmm. um, I think they opened a can of worms that they, that, you know, they haven't really, they have made a decision, but they haven't really thought about the consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, UEFA has told leagues quite clearly that um, qualification to Champions League, Europa League has to be done by sporting merit. They have told leagues not 
to cancel without champions. And um, the Dutch have more or less defied that. And uh, I think that the decision that they made is going to open the door for many different lawsuits. And, um, you know, unlike Belgium, because in Belgium they declared a winner and they declared relegation, right? Okay. Um, I think they're actually expanding the league. They're allowing two teams to come up. They have they found a solution that every team was happy with. In the Netherlands, they they basically canceled the season. But you know, um, Dutch football is very fragmented. Um, I'm fortunate enough that I have lived in the Netherlands and I've done actually uh, my master studies there and played um, football in the country. And it's it's a country that is um, internally, when it comes to football, very fragmented in various different political groups. You know especially the big clubs, Ajax, PSV, and Feyenoord, I have very, very different opinions on how the league should be run. And then you have other emerging clubs like Alkmaar and Utrecht, and the Dutch are very headstrong, and they, they always want to be right. And I think all these different club personalities currently want to be right. And I think it's going to be an interesting case example of a league shutting down, but opening the can of worms of not having come up with a resolution of how to actually determine a champion. And it's going to open the doors for, you know, all sorts of protests, legal suits, etc. And it's probably going to make it even the decision to end the season now is probably going to be worse than trying to find out finding some sporting merit to finish it. And this is why I'm saying the final word hasn't been spoken on this, because we could see lawsuits going on for the next three, four years on how the Dutch season was cancelled. You know, the 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 judiciary in football is slow, you know, because you have to first go to your local, then you have to go to UEFA, then you have to go to FIFA, and then the final decision makers are this, is the CAS, the Court of Arbitration and Sport. And right now, you know, we are just seeing the beginning of it. And I think a lot of leagues are going to look at that, at the, what the Eredivisie has done, is like, no, we don't want that. <laughs> right. You know, because we don't want a cancellation of a season because that's going to possibly make things even worse. Exactly. I, I want to go and look at now at the, at the Bundesliga since they will be, like I said, one of the first ones to come back um, in this country. It is not the most popular league to watch, but it is one of the most popular leagues to watch. I believe the way it goes here in the United States is uh, Liga MX is most popular, followed mm-hmm. by the Premier League. Then I believe MLS and I believe the German Bundesliga is fourth on the list. La Liga. La Liga. La, well. La, La Liga. Right. And it also depends mm-hmm. on accessibility to the leagues as well. Um but with Germany being first and foremost coming up, especially um, with the amount of, of of kid stars or superstars that you have from this side of the world, in in like you had mentioned before, Tyler Adams, you have yeah. Alfonso Davies, who's had a, a, a great run as of recent, uh, Giovanni Reina, who's been emerging. You now also bring in um, people like uh, players like Erling Holland, who is it's really jumped onto the scene. You've got the the talent of Robert Lewandowski at, at Bayern Munich. There's so many people, players to watch and so many teams to watch, and it's also been a massively compelling race. Um, being the first league to come back to sport, especially if it comes back in this in the United States ahead of baseball, ahead of basketball, ahead of hockey. What do you feel that that would ha- apply a massive boost to the viewership of the Bundesliga and to football in general in the United States? So this is, yeah, this is a difficult question because I can't answer it. Um, I know that we have a lot of U.S. stars playing in the Bundesliga. And I think, first and foremost, I think the league decision isn't about trying to boost popularity anywhere. Um, This is about simple survival. I I wrote an article um, on both Transfermarkt and Forbes actually about this, that 13 out of 36 Bundesliga clubs 
face bankruptcy if we don't bring football back in May. That's a hard reality, right? Yeah. So uh, I think first and foremost, this is not the Bundesliga saying, oh, look, we have a massive opportunity here to be, become popular in the United States. Um, they, I think they really don't care <laughs> about yeah, yeah. that at the moment. Um, I, it's going to be really curious to see what is going to happen once the football comes back on television because it's not going to be the same. Uh, it's going to be quiet. You know, it's going to be um, like watching international friendlies, um, you know, sort of international friendlies, like when Wales play the Faroe Islands or something like that, right? The quality, of course, is going to be much better, but it's going to be quiet. There's not going to be fans in the stands. And um, it's going to be an eerie experience. And I wonder how that's going to affect people watching it. So it's really difficult to say if people are actually going to jump on and say, oh, look, this is football. Like someone is kicking the ball around. Is that going to be enough? Or is is part of watching the game actually experiencing the atmosphere? Even if you're on television, is it, isn't it? And in Bundesliga, this is their biggest selling point by far, is that they have the best atmosphere of any league on the planet. They have the highest attendance of any league on the planet. And this includes NFL, right? That is their biggest selling point. It's football as it meant to be. And if you take that away, how much do you lose from the game? I think personally right now, um, the, the league quality-wise is probably the best in Europe. Um, this season, you know, I, th- only, I always only think season to season because, like, you know, from the top four leagues, it varies so much season by season. But this year, I think quality-wise, and you see the results in the Champions League and the Europa League, it, it very much underlines that. Right now, it's probably the highest quality league in Europe, top to bottom. Um, so it is a high-quality league to watch. But how many people outside of Europe actually understand that, right? Um, because it, it is the Premier League that is the most compelling. And... It's going to be interesting. I, I'm, I'm actually, I think it's going to be really fascinating to watch when the Bundesliga comes back and it's going to be live TV on sport because in the US there's TV right holders, here in Canada there's TV right holders. What are they going to do with that product? And I think that is that is going to be very compelling to see um, if the Bundesliga comes back. And I'm, and I'm glad you went down this road because it actually leads me into my final questions. And again, thank you for all, giving us so much time today. If the Bundesliga does come back, which I do imagine that we we will see that, I think that is a definite. And if they pick up where they left off, the third match week in from this break is actually Der Klassiker between uh, Borussia mm-hmm. Dortmund and uh, Bayern Munich. Played at Signal Iduna Park. You, you talk about the yellow wall that really won't be there um, if we play behind closed doors. What does Der Klassiker three weeks from May 9th, if they if they do kick off when everything is scheduled when everything they're talking about in the timeline they're giving us, what does the Classica look like to you? Oh boy, yeah. I mean, I've done the Classica um, as a journalist a few times, um, mostly at the Allianz Arena because um, those who follow me more closely know that I split my time pretty evenly between the Canadian West Coast and Munich, where where I was born, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the Allianz Arena is where I cover most of my Bundesliga games, and um, I. <laughs> That the joke is that um, there's actually two classicers. There's the one where Dortmund play in Munich and get destroyed every single time because <laughs> you know they they just falter in that stadium. Um, there's something about it. And then there's the one when they play in Dortmund and they actually beat Bayern. Um, you know, I covered the uh, DFL Super Cup um, last August. <laughs> it seems a lifetime ago now, but um, you know, I covered that game and Dortmund were miles ahead of Bayern. Uh, in that match in particular. And then I covered the Klassiker in Munich and Bayern smashed Dortmund 4-0. Um, you know, Dortmund is a side that very much gets its energy from the crowd. 
And that's a fact. I mean, oh, yeah. you, you saw the difference between the game that Dortmund played and um, against PSG at home, right? And they were by far the better side and beat PSG. And you saw the difference in with the game that they played in Paris behind closed doors. I tell you what, if they had played that game um, inside a full stadium, I think Dortmund would have actually beaten PSG or gone through. But this moment, the crowd is gone you suck the energy out of that squad. And I think that's going to be something that is going to be very difficult for them. So the Klassica, you know, I think for Bayern, they're very methodical. They're going to just play the game and they, it doesn't really matter for them if there's attendance in the stadium or not. That's, that squad is extremely professional and um, doesn't. it's not an, an energetic squad. It's a team that just plays its football, like, you know, like robots almost. Mm-hmm. And um, that's going to help them. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how Dortmund is going to do at home without fans. I think it's actually going to be benefiting Bayern. But it's also what is interesting, and then, you know, we're talking about this game, but I think there's going to be other sides that are going to benefit from this as well. Um, one of them is RB Leipzig, because um, I spoke to Tyler Adams about this in the Transfermarkt interview, and he said, like, look, sometimes in the Bundesliga you're the better side, but you go to a particular stadium, and it's very difficult to play there because... That team, that team's facility is just very tough. And being the better team in the Bundesliga is not enough. But all of a sudden, you take that aspect out. It's going to be interesting to see because Leipzig under Nagelsmann is another very methodical side, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they're going to affect them. So I think you're taking a huge, huge X factor out of the game. All of a sudden, it becomes almost like chess, right? Where the emotional aspects of it are almost gone. And it's going to be interesting to see how the different teams are going to react to that. And the Klassiker, I think, is going to be... Yeah, it's going to be a weird one to watch because I think normally I would say Dortmund would probably take a point or maybe all three points at home against Bayern. But now I'm not so sure. Yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, the home experience or the fan experience and the energy that comes out of Signal Iduna Park... On, on match day is is second to none it, it comes through yeah. the television here in the united states you can feel it and it's for me it is one of the biggest home field advantage advantages in all of sport around the world it's it's right up there with some of the best of them and yeah it, it, to take that away from them especially on this leg i, I think if the roles were reversed and this were being played at Allianz, i i think it it would not affect Bayern Munich as much as it would affect Dortmund, but I think this match at Signal Iduna affects uh, Dortmund way way more than it does Bayern Munich, and I think it's it's gonna it's gonna affect not only the match, but at this point, given the uh, the close proximity of all these teams in, in the Bundesliga, it, it could affect actually the the title if they do if they do get back to it and they do run the full season and play all thirty six matches for sure. So. Um, yeah, um, maybe to add to this, I mean, uh, I remember covering my first ever game in, in Dortmund about uh, two and a half years ago, and you walk into in onto the press stand, so you go kind of down, you come back up, and it's so bright and loud, it hits, it's like a slap in the face, and you mm-hmm. almost want to fall back down the stairs. Um, it is a frightening thing, even for like just working there, and you imagine you come a player coming out of that tunnel and we've actually gone through that tunnel um on a dfl tour and the noise that you experience um is is incredible and you know the last game that i covered at signali duna park was when dortmund played milan and they were down by two goals at halftime and the moment that first goal went in you knew that they would score another two 
you do yeah. because you know that the crowd carried the ball into the into the net, and that is incredible. Yeah. Um, there is no other facility on the planet that can do that. Maybe with one exception, Frankfurt, but that's about it. You know, it's just. Yeah, and I, I think they're going to. It's going to be interesting how they cope with that. No doubt about it, Manuel. Thank you again for joining us on the show. All the best, and we hope you stay safe during this uh, this crazy time. And we look forward to having you back on the show very, very soon. Yeah, thank you once again for having me on. And thanks again to Manuel Veth from Transfer Market for joining us and giving us a great interview on the Bundesliga, Rob. I don't have anything else left on the docket, my friends. So without any further ado, let's hit the closing music. Let's do it. All right, here we go. So, for episode 279 of Low Limit Football, special thanks again to Manuel Veth for joining us from Transfer Market. Next week, we'll be back with another show as the leagues and players start to return to their teams and begin training in preparation to continue the 2019-2020 football season. So, for episode 279 of Low Limit Football, I am Joe Ucello. I'm Roberto Rojas. Thanks for listening, everyone. Wash your hands. And good night.